Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are joined by Dr. Malka Simkovich. Dr. Simkovich is the Crown Ryan Chair of Jewish Studies and Director of the Catholic Jewish Studies Program at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. She is the author of The Making of Jewish Universalism, From Exile to Alexandria and Discovering Second Temple Literature, the Scriptures and Stories that Shaped Early Judaism which received the 2019 Association of Jewish Libraries Judaica Reference Honor Award. Dr. Simkovich's articles have been published in the Harvard Theological Review and the Journal for the Study of Judaism. She's involved in numerous local and international interreligious dialogue projects, which help to increase understanding and friendship between Christians and Jews. Without further ado, Dr. Simkovich. Thank you, Dr. Simkovich, for joining the Judaism Demystified podcast. First of all, I'd like our audience to get to know you and your background, how you got into your interest in Second Temple Period Judaism, um, and so on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here, and I'm glad to open up our conversation by saying a little bit about who I am. Uh, I was brought up in a run-of-the-mill Orthodox Jewish home, in Philadelphia. Um, I come from a big family. I'm the youngest of six kids, and we all span the gamut of Orthodox Judaism today. Uh, I went to Stern College, like many of my friends and peers, never expecting to end up with a PhD uh, in Second Temple Judaism and working with the Catholic Church. So there was no foresight. There was no goal or plan. I majored in Jewish studies and music because those were things that I liked. Um, and the development of my training was very organic, but somehow I ended up in the world of Second Temple Judaism. I thought I was going to get a PhD in Tanakh, which in my mind, um, I say Tanakh, not Hebrew Bible, because in my Stern College mind, I thought that this was a very firm degree. I thought that this was like a very pious thing that I could do, get a PhD in Tanakh, and somehow this would enhance my credentials to be a uh, a teacher at some from high school. Little did I know that going from Stern to Harvard and getting a Bible degree in Harvard isn't actually not consonant with uh, your standard Orthodox Jewish training in Chumash. Um, and so studying Chumash at Stern and before that Tour Academy Philadelphia, um, and then finding myself 22 and very beshatled and <laughs> pregnant and just sort of like showing up at Harvard and being absolutely blindsided by the world of biblical criticism. You can imagine it's like Goldilocks. First I started at Stern and then I ended up in the den of heresy. Um, that's a joke because I made many good friends at Harvard, but um, I, I ended up in this sort of middle space, chronologically, maybe theologically, and that middle space is Second Temple Judaism. Um, and I actually left Harvard and pursued the doctorate at Brandeis, which also in my mind is kind of a middle space. Uh, it has Jewish features. It's an interesting identity at Brandeis. It's at its core, you know, it has this Jewish history, but it's also a, you know, a, a, a not, it's not Yeshiva University, something in between, again, like Goldilocks. So I got my PhD in Second Temple Judaism there, and uh, that has served me very, very well. So what is it about the Second Temple period that, you know, really want, you really felt connected to and you wanted to uh, explore? There are so many ways to answer that question. It's a great question. First of all, it became very clear to me 
that I would have to have a lot of cognitive dissonance if I were to pursue a PhD in Bible, not a PhD in Tanakh. Um, if I were to pursue a PhD in Bible, I would be living a life of cognitive dissonance where I would have my Orthodox Jewish identity in my domestic life. And then I'd be going off to work and talking about the various biblical authors uh, of the Hebrew Bible. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I uh, can talk about that uh, with you another time. There are people who do that. Uh, to me, it felt, um, it didn't feel, it didn't feel natural to me. Mm -hmm. um, when I stumbled into the world of Second Temple Judaism, all the challenges of studying scriptural texts as an Orthodox Jew kind of fell away because there's much less at stake when you're looking at Second Temple Jewish literature that's not part of Tanakh. You can talk about authorship. You can talk about transmission and circulation and the real people who produced these texts. But you can also talk about that with respect, with honor, uh, and really appreciate the value of these texts without discussing, oh, no, you know, what happens if I think that maybe God did not write every word. So I stumbled into this world and I realized right away um, that I was missing in my own mental timeline about 600 years. So I think I've mentioned this in other podcasts. I was trained to think about Jewish history through the Hebrew calendar, right? 1948 is when Avram is, I don't know, leaves wherever he leaves Haran. I don't know. I, I remember 1948 being an important year. But um, getting to um, getting to look at these texts in the academic sphere, you're dealing with a whole different calendar. And when you are looking at that calendar and you see that 538 BCE is the end of the Babylonian exile and the Beit HaMikdash, the second one, is built in 515 BCE and falls in 70 CE, you're talking about almost a 600-year period that is just neglected in our yeshiva day school curricula. We have a mental timeline, I think, and that mental timeline ends with the end of Tanakh. So that would be Ezra, Nehemiah, um, Daniel. This is the early, early years of the Second Temple period, but these, these books are rarely studied uh, in depth in high school, in Jewish high schools, and they're also not historically contextualized, I don't think. Um, mm -hmm. And then we have this mental timeline. We end with Ezra, and then we jump all the way to the rabbinic period with the Mishnah and maybe, you know, the, the Yerushalmi, the Bavli, the books of Midrash. And then what do we do? We go back to Ezra and we turn him into a rabbi. We turn Ezra into a proto-rabbinic figure, right? <laughs> so we think of Ezra as like, what did Ezra do? He brought the text to the yeah. people and he taught us how to study and he was a sofer. And, and what did the rabbis achieve? Well, the rabbis taught us how to accommodate the absence of a temple and how to enter into this whole medium of text that um, we, you know, the Jews were not really trained to sort of enter into a relationship with God through the text, the rabbis did that for, for us. But then we kind of think, oh, well, actually, you know what is really cool? Ezra did that for us 600 years earlier. In other words, it's a way of pushing rabbinic authenticity into the biblical period. Right. Um, of course, we do with Abraham too, right? Abraham wore a strimal or whatever you want. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if he was a Litvak, but, uh, you know. the it was definitely the, smarty. It was definitely smarty. Okay. Really smarty, okay. <laughs> that, that's actually a thing, by the way. That's actually a thing. Yeah. I, I've, I've heard twice this idea that Abraham wore a strimal, believe it or not. Oh, a strimal. Okay, but then he wasn't smarty. No, that's smarty. <laughs> okay, yeah. No, but I've actually heard there are people that, that do think that. That, that do you think pretty that incredible they didn't say that in jest or, really no it was really 
<laughs> Fascinating. I mean, on, on I'm not going to say who though. Oh, you're not going to name names. That would I'm make not it name fun, names. No, 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 no. Out of respect. No. That's very respectful. <laughs> but what does it rhyme with? You could. Yeah, does it rhyme with? Yeah. <laughs> Should I just okay? I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna follow that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do so, that. So <laughs> the rabbis do talk about Moshe Rabbeinu. I mean, what does that mean? That we always refer to Moshe as Moshe Rabbeinu. The rabbinic period is a chronological era in Jewish history. We don't have rabbis in the Second Temple period or in the earlier biblical period, and yet we say Moshe Rabbeinu all the time. What does that mean? Well, that means that you're arguing for not just rabbinic authority but a notion that the rabbis are the recipients of an unchanging tradition that goes all the way back to Moshe. I mean, this, this is not shocking to anyone who's been through yeshiva day school, but if you think about it, it's shocking. If you think about this notion that tradition doesn't change and the rabbis just receive it, they're walking around one day, oh no, the Beit HaMikdash has fallen, plop, here comes from heaven, the Masorah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a shocking idea. So maybe you can help build a, you know, paint a picture for us about what was going on during that gap between, you know, the the end of the prophets and then the beginning of kind of the rabbinic movement, the Pharisees, uh, the four main sects that existed at the time. Yeah, I mean, there's so much that you just said, uh, Ben, that I would, um, <laughs> I want to break your sentence up into tiny little phrases and then question each phrase <laughs> because one of the things that I say all the time is that second temple Judaism was not sectarian the vast majority of Jews were not in the sect and the whole notion of sects it's specific to the land of Israel they don't show up until at the earliest the 170s BCE so you're dealing with centuries of the second temple period where sectarianism does and in the diaspora, where you have easily over, there's no sectarianism. That mean, you know, I, I think also that the Second Temple period gets ignored. Yeah, we'll talk okay. about Danielle. No one. Second, one second. No. One second. You're, you're... For I mean, I, in my love, I know Wait, you're breaking up. You're breaking up. One second. I don't know what's happening. Uh, you hear me? I didn't hear any breakup. I didn't hear any breakup. Yeah, it's it's from it's there was a static. Um, you could start from. Um, uh -oh. I don't even know my train of thought is lost. Give me a minute. Yeah, you, no, you oh, were saying. Yeah. yeah, you were saying that uh, you were start from where you were saying that sectarianism is a, you know, um, you can dissect that basically. The vast majority of the Second Temple period is not sectarian. First of all, sectarianism is a phenomenon that is limited to the land of Israel. And you have over a million Jews easily who are living outside the land of Israel by the second century BCE. Um, and these diasporan Jews do not know from sectarianism. And even in the land of Israel, most Jews are not sectarian. But more than that, before I even get to the sect, and why they are important because they are important especially the pharisees i just want to go to the early years of the second temple period and i especially want to highlight the fact that i think this these are the silent years I and mean, you have esther right you have Hayamim. again not <laughs> i've never not so popular no 
that's so popular. I have you met anyone who has said, you know what I'm really passionate about? Dubre Ayame. Like that's my thing. <laughs> Don't take my thing. But yeah. like, I literally have never met anyone who is interested in it. And and I feel bad saying that because everyone should go find your nearest, you know, Tanakh after this talk and um, <laughs> read it, I guess. But there's Ezra Nehemiah. There are books produced in the Persian period, in the early years of the Second Temple period. And besides those books, we know quite little about what was going on from 538 BCE, which is when the Persian Empire defeats the Babylonian kingdom and says to the Jews in exile, you can go back to Judea, rebuild your temple, all the way until 323 BCE. Remember, the years are obviously going down. So I'm bad at math. So 538 BC to 323, I don't know. What is that? Like 260 years? It's a long time. Uh, that's definitely wrong, by the way. Please do not take a calculator out. But it's a long time. And besides the books that we have in the Tanakh, we don't have so much evidence about what life was like for Jews living under Persian rule. We have some material. But that situation changes under Hellenism when Alexander the Great conquers the Persian Empire and Jews now find themselves under this thing called Hellenism. The 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 proliferation of Jewish literature explodes. We don't exactly know why this is, but we have thousands and thousands of pages of Jewish literature that were produced in the second and first centuries BCE and first century CE. In other words, we have so much, we have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to Jewish literature produced in the late Second Temple period. Now, it doesn't mean that your average Orthodox Jew has read these texts, but they're available to you if you look. Um, you can find them on Amazon. You can find them online. But the Persian period is kind of ignored. Um, and so, again, you know, those of us who even do know about Second Temple Judaism and are interested in it, the mental timeline might not go from Ezra to the rabbis. Okay, it goes from Ezra to the Pharisees and the Sadducees to the rabbis. But I think it is really important to consider uh, those early years of the Second Temple period, uh, because it's in those years under Persian rule that I think we get a lot of clues as to how we go from Judeanism to Judaism. Hmm. Right? How do you go from being a Judean to being a Jew? Right? We don't have the word Judaism in Tanakh. Right. Right. The so, first time it's mentioned is probably in Esther, right? Like a Yehudi. Well, we don't have the word Judaism in Esther, but we do yeah, have Yehudi, yeah, yeah. right? So we have the descriptor. And the question is, is that an ethnogeographic? Now I'm going to speak like an obnoxious academic. Mm. Is that is that an ethnogeographic term? Are you identifying Mordechai as someone who comes from Judea? Or are you saying he's a Jew? Right. Putting that aside, you don't right, even have Right. So Yehudi would mean from Judea. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a nationality claim of Jew. I got what you're saying. Okay. But, it, but it's also, okay, I'm going to say, I'm going to respond to that. But first, I'm just going to add, Judaism doesn't appear in Esther at all. The first time it appears is in two Maccabees, which is a late second century BCE work. So the first time you see Judaism is in the late second century BCE. Now, the question of Yehudi is it's a huge question. There's a lot at stake. The question, though, is almost not answerable because our language, our lexicon is so different from the lexicon of this period. So in other words, like, were they Judeans or were they Jews? Yes, right? Of course, they were both. This is the big question. What is a Jew? Are we a religion, a nationality, a people, 
a race. Well, you know, let's say no to race. We're not a race. But um, the question of what are the Jews is a question that is raging in the Second Temple period, both from an internal perspective, like what are we? And also that's exactly what Greeks and Romans are saying, like, what are these people? Today, a very <laughs> obvious framing. I know they really were like, what? You know, they use the term ethnoi, like an ethnic group. But even that, you can't understand it through a modern definition. But um, what was I going to say? Um, okay, so for example, you probably both have non-Orthodox friends who are Jewish, right? Sure. Would, you, would you say to those people, well, are you an atheist? They say yes. And then would you say, oh, okay, so you're not a Jew? No. Never. It would never enter your mind. Never. Never. Right. Never. It's not a barometer. Now, I work with the Catholic Church. That is the barometer for Christian identity. It's a confessional religion. So if you don't believe in Jesus as the Messiah, Son of God, etc., there's no being Christian. Right? It's a confessional religion. That's actually the norm. I think this doesn't occur to most Jews that like, we don't have a confessional element. Yes, in the medieval period, Rambam said, okay, here are the things that you have to believe. That was happening in the medieval period. Like, can you imagine what Rambam felt about the fact that like for a thousand years, <laughs> like the rabbis were not producing, a, you know, a, what the Christians would call a catechesis, like a list of things you have to believe. Like tenets, basic tenets of- tenets, Exactly, exactly. So even in the second temple period, there were Jews who were like, listen, you know, I'm Jewish. Now, my core beliefs, you know, might be different than my neighbor's core beliefs. But the question of what do you have to do to be a Jew, it's an interesting question. Now, on the one hand, it's obviously genealogical because this is a group of people. They, you know, according to tradition, they left Egypt, came together to Judea, but then they're scattered and there is fluidity. People are joining this community we know that there are converts, that's in air quotes for people who don't see me, because there is no systematic method of conversion to Judaism in the Second Temple period, but there's fluidity. People are joining this. The whole, the whole conversion thing kind of ebbs and flows throughout that period, like how serious it, like how serious they take it, how strict they are versus how lenient they are. It kind of changes throughout history. Yeah, I mean, I would say that's true. And we have really interesting evidence from the Roman end of Romans complaining that people who were not Jewish were identifying themselves as Jews and converting. There's even a tradition that for a time in the late second temple period, Jews were expelled from Rome because so many people were deciding to become Jewish. The question of how you would decide that again, were they dipping in the mikvah? Were they studying, you know, with their Asha Torah rabbis for three hours a week? Uh, Probably not, but we don't know if, that there was a systematic method of conversion to Judaism at this early stage. My point is, is that the identity was, there was a little more fluidity. The boundaries were not quite, okay, so Ben Sionis, maybe. Um, <laughs> no, I'm trying to, I'm trying to put it together. So um, first of all, I'm just thinking about Megillah Dester in itself. It's this sort of identity crisis that you're describing is sort of described in the Megillah. I mean, in a sense that, that um, uh, identity crisis, you know, with Esther and Mordechai and the palace and the whole thing sort of plays, it's almost like it's, it's, it's playing off of that idea, right? In the Megillah itself. So this is, to, what? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I want to say a little bit more about the crisis of identity. I think that there's a 
huge theological problem that we never talk about. When we talk about um, the Persian era, when we talk about the story of Esther, when we talk about the second temple period, we miss the boat. There's one theological question that every Jew had to ask themselves during this period, meaning from 538 BC, when Cyrus, the Persian king, who has just defeated the Babylonian empire, says to Judeans in exile, go back to the land of Israel. And most of them don't, right? Many do, but some of them stay in Persia. Yep. That's like, you know, they end up being the rabbinic community uh, and, and many of them leave, but they don't go back to the land of Israel. They're spreading and spreading and spreading. This is the beginning of global Judaism. This is the beginning of a whole new identity. There's one theological question that you have to ask yourself if you are alive at this time. One question, I'm building up suspense. I don't even want to say it because it's kind of fun to like leave everybody hanging. The question is, has the exile come to an end? That's the question. There's so much at stake in this question. On the one hand, we rebuilt the Beit HaMitash, right? Yay, Beit HaMitash number two. And the other sacrifices, of course, we have the famous Gemaras of how the second Beit HaMitash was inferior to the first one, but it's there, right? We're, we have priests, we have Levites, we have, you know, should I say Kohanim and Levim? I don't know how secular I should, I should oh, be when I'm describing this. Uh, but we have, we have the Beit HaMitash, the temple. On the other hand, not everyone returns. The majority of Judeans, soon to be Jews, do not go back. So now you have a question. Has the exile come to an end? And it's a huge question because if the exile is ongoing, it's an exile by choice, right? right? Because then you're saying every Jew who decides to not return to the land of Israel is condemning themselves to a state of divine displeasure because God has essentially said the exile ends when you return. You haven't returned, the exile keeps going. Is leaving it in our hands in a way. Exactly. Uh -huh. I feel like I feel like that um that sort of goes on today as well, no? We're, we're uh, sort of in that same exact question in a way. I you think know, we have the state of Israel. Right. You know. <laughs> so it's similar, but it's a little different. And I think where it's different is that the rabbis do something really brilliant with the concept of exile and galut. The rabbis introduce a new idea that I don't think exists in the second temple period. In the second temple period, I'll just say first, there's a misalignment. Jews in the land of Israel tend to say the diaspora is a category that signifies divine rejection. So if you're there, God is not happy with you. Diaspora and Jews tend to ignore that and say, no, 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 we have a universal God. So by virtue of the fact that our God is omniscient and universal, God has equal care for all of the people of Israel. But putting that aside, there is a misalignment. The rabbis introduce a new idea. And that idea is that exile is not just a space. Exile is a time. Mm -hmm. And when you say exile is a temporal category, you put everyone in it. Mm -hmm. So the rabbis course there are rabbinic communities in babylonia and there are rabbinic communities in the land of israel the rabbis say we are all in a state of exile even if you're in the land of israel you're in a state of exile mm -hmm. we don't see that idea at all in the second temple period you see judean jewish writers saying you know the diaspora has to come to an end and we have a lot of prayers asking god to bring all the jews back to the land of israel um, and you don't see those prayers from diaspora in text 
but then the rabbis introduced this this new sort of temporal category and so today um today i think we 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 use both of these categories right we talk about the fact that we're waiting for mashiach many of us talk about that my seven-year-old just asked me today he's really stressed out about mashiach <laughs> um, so uh, i'm worried for him because he's so anxious about mashiach but you know we we're all wherever we are we're waiting for this new era whatever that era will look like i have no insight uh, but also we do think about this geographic boundary and again it was interesting to me this is totally anecdotal i do think that my friends in israel especially my american friends who've made aliyah i do think that they think about the diaspora like schmutz laaretz like mm-hmm. you are in you know you've made your choice your gashmias your materialistic choice so good for you like good luck in the end time <laughs> i i don't know did you learn this tradition that when michelle comes our heads will roll Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Does that terrify you? <laughs> Not really. Not really. Why? <laughs> I mean, we're going to be in coffins, so we can't roll, right? We're blocked. Is that what you thought as an eight year old when you learned? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, how's that going to be logistically? How does that work? You know? <laughs> so I, I was at a problem with it. Okay, so you're you were like a little rationalist walking around like in third grade, so you were fine. So I wasn't. <laughs> I was terrified, like really, really terrified. So I empathize with my little one. Right. You, Benzion, what do you think about that? I've always had an intuition when it came to these types of things that, that they're pointing to something deeper. I'm not so much of a literalist. Never really was. It's not my style. No, no, I was a gullible literal. You know, I see kid. I really, you know, that kind of thing where I think we have been inculcated, we Jews in the diaspora have been inculcated with ideas that took shape originally, I think, in Eretz Israel. Uh, but there was always this misalignment of, you know, are we, um, <clears throat> Are we ontologically different from Jews who live in the land of Israel? Are we are we less authentic? These questions were being asked very, very early on. And so you find second temple literature that engage with these questions. Has the exile come to an end? Where does God want us? Um, and these questions, you can guess, do not reach a resolution or a consensus. And when the Hashmanaim uh, achieved the shocking victory against the Syrian Greeks in 164 BCE, and then you have exactly a year of, of Jewish independence, that's all it is. Uh, sorry, not a year. A hundred years from 164 to 63 BC, you have a century of Jewish independence. Um, there is evidence that Jews in the land of Israel expected Jews in the diaspora to jump on this opportunity and come back, which mm-hmm. kind of reminds me of the founding of Israel in 1948, where there was maybe an expectation of like, all right, so now, you know, you've somewhere to go, leave the diaspora and come home. And some Jews, like my ancestors, were like, no, thanks. Mm-hmm. We're good. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the same thing in 164 BCE, where we have we have documentation that Judeans were like, oh, all right, so this is happening now. You guys are coming, and the diaspora and Jews are like, no, nope, we're good. <laughs> Thank you. Here's some money. Here's a check. We'll support we'll support the temple by sending gold to uh, to you, and uh, we'll do that again in three to six months. So, so, so are you? suggesting or leading to the idea that the Pharisees kind of filled up the vacuum of this identity crisis and kind of shaped it? 
uh, can you say more about that question? Because I think that they were one of many who were weighing in on this. Correct. Well, I guess they were the victor for 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 the for the majority of that. No, the victor in 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 their understanding of Jewish identity. I think that's true. I think that Josephus talks also with some ambivalence. Josephus, being the late first century CE uh, Jewish historian, talks with a lot of ambivalence about the Pharisees' influence. So there weren't so many Pharisees. He says that there were 6,000 Pharisees, but he does say in more than one place that they have outsized influence on the masses. So that means that they had public roles as teachers um, and that they also were involved in local Judean politics and people looked to them in Judea for insight, for inspiration. I don't think that Judean, that ideas that we attribute to the Pharisees, like the centrality of the text, I don't think that those ideas are invented by the Pharisees. And mm. so, you know, when we talk about the Torah as a category, this is an interesting example. The Torah, what would that have meant? What would the word have meant? What would the category have meant to a Jew in the early Second Temple period? We actually have some evidence of what that would have meant from Nehemiah Perachet when Ezra reads a Torah to the Jewish people who have returned from Babylonia and they're very overwhelmed and they cry, they're so emotional. And so you have the notion that Jews are connecting to God through text very early on. And uh, I think sometimes we think, okay, the Beit HaMidash fell and the rabbis are like, all right, what do we do? Okay, let's, uh, you know, study Torah. And so the temple's gone, so now we're going to Shul. But synagogues, Shul, whatever you want to call it, Beit Knesset, they are invented. It's not a good word, but Jews start to gather together to read their holy text at a very, very, very early stage that's concurrent with most of the Second Temple period. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you could go to the Beit HaMidash, but you were more likely, even if you lived in the vicinity of Yerushalayim, you were more likely to go to a synagogue um, and hear the Torah being read on Shabbat. That was something that was happening in the Second Temple period, and it was happening in the diaspora. But here's the thing. This this whole category of Torah is a lightning rod for debate about the diaspora. And here's the problem. I don't want to say problem. Here's the question about how to understand Torah in the Second Temple period. The modality of the Torah is that it's transferable. It's portable. So it has been argued that just the invention of this idea that you can gather anywhere in Alexandria and Egypt or Rome or Bavel, and you can gather together and read the Torah, that enabled the diaspora to thrive. You can make that argument that because we had this idea called Torah, that Jews would gather around and hear and they would interpret. And so then they sort of a little bit maybe psychologically or spiritually disconnected from the Beit HaMikdash. You could make that argument that the modality of this portable sacred text ironically ensured the success of the diaspora kind of ironically right but yeah. but here's the tension the content of the torah tells the jews that they need to be in the land of israel yeah because everything all this the temple service everything is all in israel all the, yeah. most of the commandments everything so in a sense we're sort of you know we're we're attaching ourselves to the torah but unable to really put it into real full practice that that's exactly. kind of like that contradiction that you're referring to, yeah. Exactly. So you have the modality, right? How are you using this object? Well, you're using it to basically create a sustaining, even thriving Jewish identity that's very far from the temple. 
but the content, what are you reading every week? You're reading texts that are telling you the locus, the spiritual heart of Jewish identity is not where you are. Mm. So this becomes a real question uh, for Jews, especially in the diaspora. Like, what is our identity? What does it mean to be a Jew? I'm sorry to say that the answer is not reached, right? We don't have, the questions are more exciting than the answers. Yeah, that's everything in life. And you yeah. see that even the communities in uh, Elephantine, uh, Egypt, right? They built a... Uh, they built a temple, basically, and uh, you know they they wanted to replace the Beit Hamikdash in a way. So there's a lot of that trying to figure out what to do post exile. And that was not the only temple in Egypt. We also know that there's a temple in a place called Leontopolis that's built in second century BCE, and this was such a popular temple that. It even is referenced in the Mishnah as Beit Chonia, the house of Onias. Onias was a priest in the early second century BCE who is considered a very, very pious Torah observant. Again, I don't know what that would have meant, but an, an observant, pious Jew who actually had to flee Jerusalem because Hellenized Jews wanted to kill him. So this is like an ironic, this is in the years leading up to the Hasmonean Rebellion. You have this ironic situation where the temple is being controlled by assimilated Hellenized Jews. And then this good priest, Onias, has to flee for his life, ends up in Egypt, builds a temple uh, with the permission of, of King Ptolemy. This becomes known as Beit Chonia, the house of Onias, or the Leontopolis temple. And observant, again, I, don't, I can't dwell on what that means, but Jews who, uh, who perceive themselves as pious, law-observant, you know, Torah observers, whatever, are going to this temple and offering sacrifices. They keep Shabbat. They keep Kashrut, uh, whatever that looked like. I don't know. They're they're circumcising their sons. They're going to synagogue regularly to read from the scriptures, and they go to their Leontopolis temple. Mm. I think that, like, if you if we when we read the Gemara, we would see. I think that the rabbis were very sensitive and keen to this problem that you're referring to. In fact, the way that they frame things like, you know, tefillah keneged korbanot, right? The, the tefillah was instead of korbanot. Therefore, it, they're kind of telling you, yeah, we might not have that now, but, you know, this new institutionalized prayer is sort of serving in its place. And then you have like, whoever learns about the korbanot, it's as if he's done them. So they, they sort of, it seems to me that the rabbis sort of tried to create this this um bridge right where we can connect via study even though like you said right the study is telling us and we're learning about things that we can't even do but they actually find found a way to kind of institutionalize it so that the actual act of study becomes in itself the service which is brilliant in a way it's so fascinating and there's so much rabbinic literature that presumes the reality of a temple and yet the rabbis, of course, know that there is no temple. And like you're saying, it's studying about these services that embody the actual experience in a way. Sure. And I want to go back to something about Leontopolis. There's a Mishnah um, that asks a question about this. If you make an oath to bring a sacrifice, but the only temple that you could bring that sacrifice to is Beit Konya in Egypt, is it better to bring a sacrifice, to bring an animal sacrifice at Leontopolis? or to violate the oath. Like what's what's the less terrible violation? 
Uh, and the consensus seems to be it's better to violate the oath. And the Gemara on that Mishnah, gosh, I can't remember offhand where it is, but there's an opinion set in the Gemara that says, and if you bring an animal sacrifice on the Antopolis, you uh, have incurred karate. It's a very, very, very serious violation. I, again, I'm like a little bit nervous about citing this because I don't remember offhand what the source is, but there is a debate over what is um, over what is the worst violation. So it's interesting. They, they're contending with this also as if as if it's still around. I mean, the rabbis really had to, they rescued Judaism from going to, you know, to oblivion because it's basically, it becomes kind of Torah in a suitcase and it's it was one it's kind of like a constitution for people living in the land and now it turns into kind of a religion by necessity you know the, all these all these enactments like praying with a minyan like that that will that will kind of ensure that people build communities and stay together right and not disperse and there's all these amazing things that they're that they introduce that if you know they people people might look at that and say oh these are innovations yes innovation is necessary if you wanted to survive. I think it's a combination of brilliantly using what was available to them and innovation. In other words, correct. I, I like the way you said that. Thank you. <laughs> but I, and I'm not disagreeing with Ben because I think what you said is that the rabbis accommodate the absence of a temple by developing this system of practice that becomes normative Judaism. And I think that's absolutely true. But like I said earlier, they don't invent shul. They don't invent the idea that the written text is, you know, could be the center of a Jew's life. That is already there for them. And I think we have the Pharisees to think, but also the predecessors who lived even earlier. And that's why the second temple period is so important because you think without the second temple period, you think, wow, the rabbis were inventors. They really just out of thin air. And yet, okay, that's kind of weird because they're claiming that they have the Masura. Everybody knows in Pirkei Avot that there's an, un, you know, an unbroken chain. So then you're like struggling. How do you make sense of this? But the answer is the second temple period yes. because the synagogues are there, right? And and that the rabbis are using this system in place and then they're developing something that's practicable. They're not the most extreme halachically. There were Jews who were practicing and interpreting like the, the Sadducees. There are Jews who are interpreting their scriptures in ways that are very unpracticable, very, very difficult. The rabbis are, Josephus says, and, and it's clear, they're moderates. They're not trying to, you know, I think sometimes today we think Orthodox Judaism is like, well, that's the hardest, right? You have like the, the varieties of Jewish denominations today and like, well, it's the hardest to be an Orthodox Jew. Maybe, but I, that's not really the situation in the second century. The rabbis are developing a system of law that is really practicable. It and has to be because it, 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 has to, it, it was for the masses. Exactly. Right. We're not talking about a small group or a cultic group. We're talking about something that's supposed to evolve the, 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 into everyone. Like the elite that I guess that the Sadducees were basically the 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 elite and people that that's not sustainable, you know, for the future. And also remember they're rejecting all of oral law. So if you're just trying to institute a system of law based on exactly what it says in the Fumish, you're gonna get into some sticky questions. Of course. Right? It's an eye for an eye. And the rabbis would never it was never a question of like, well, there are there are laws that you you can only understand through the correlating oral tradition. Um, and that made things actually more moderate. For sure. And and Josephus even speaks like, uh, you know, the naysayers will say that, you know, the Rabbi Hudanasi invented, you know, the, the Mishnah 200 years after the temple was destroyed. But 
in reality, in the reality, um, Josephus cites the existence of an oral tradition, you know, way before that. So and not just Josephus too. We have references to the unwritten law of the fathers. Yes, you're right. Josephus does talk about, um, and especially links it with the Pharisees, who he says they've received traditions from their fathers. Philo of Alexandria, the great philosopher in the early first century CE, talks about an unwritten law. Um, and 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 they're just one of many. We know that there are um that there's something being transmitted orally and we, we even have halachic material. A great example is the Dead Sea Scrolls. We have halachic material in these caves. And Larry Schiffman, Lawrence Schiffman at New York University has done amazing, amazing work looking at the legal, the halachic material produced uh, by the sect or preserved by the sect. So this would have been second first century BCE, the Dead Sea. Mm -hmm. And looking at their halachic material in light of later rabbinic material, there's that there was that there were oral legal, and homiletical traditions. I mean, Desi, yeah, I mean, the Dead Sea Scrolls is, is in because they wrote it down. But we know from Philo and Josephus that it's not being written down yet. Fascinating. So there's continuity and there's innovation. That's all that's the story of the Jews. <laughs> I love the way you phrase that because you're 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 being sensitive to both to both aspects and you know because some people that they always want to just concentrate on the innovation part and then there's some people that just want to always focus on the tradition part but you're really highlighting that what they were really doing was they were taking the existing tradition and they were utilizing it in the most ingenious and most practical way actually in order to really give Judaism a, a more pronounced identity that was very much needed and in question at the time. Absolutely. And, you know, people ask me all the time, has being a historian or studying these texts that are not in our tradition, they're not in Tanakh, and they're not obviously like of interest to the rabbis, has this threatened your faith? Has it threatened your imuna? I was just about to ask you that. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> I, wanted to, I wanted to ask you that. To me, it has made me way stronger. Um, I think the study of history and especially the study of the second temple period can be an incredible um, way to buttress your faith. But I do think it also requires rethinking when it comes to how certain, and I don't want to get too heretical here, but how certain books that, um, you know, end up in the Tanakh, how they came to development. But at the same time, you know, I'll just say the, the sort of boring thing to say, which is I, I, deeply think that the survival of the Jews is a miracle. It doesn't make sense. It Historically, academically, it doesn't make sense that, that the Hashemarayim should have or could have defeated the Syrian Greeks. It doesn't make sense that after undergoing Roman occupation and, and the destruction of, of Yerushalayim and then the destruction of Beitar and the destruction of maybe a quarter million Jews under um, uh, following the rebellion of Bar Kokhba, it doesn't make sense that the rabbi should have been so successful in their program to establish a normative system of Jewish practice. None of this makes Nobody, sense. No, I don't think there's another nation or people in history that have survived more than one exile, let alone like 10, which we Expulsions, have. Expulsions, migrations. Exactly. It, does, it doesn't make sense. But so on the one hand, I study this period and I it does not threaten my faith. I will tell you on a personal level, though, I don't lose sleep over the question of biblical authorship. 
I believe in God. I believe in a covenantal relationship between God and the Jewish people. I, you know, what I do is not empty. I'm not like going through the motions. Uh, I, I find meaning in being an Orthodox Jew, but am I losing sleep at night because, you know, someone, uh, because whatever, again, I'll go back to Jibrayami, but I really feel like that, you know, uh, is not fair to Jibrayami, but like, I, I, is that a sacred text written by Hashem given to Moshe? Like, oh gosh, I'm really hating on Divrayamim. Maybe I should choose a different <laughs> book. But I mean, I think you get my point. I'm not losing sleep over whether every word of the Chumash or Tanakh is, you know, right. was given to Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu. Um, and 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 I think that that's okay. I think there are other ways to connect. I think when we when we look at the history, it's just so unlikely. It's so shocking. And 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 the rabbis, yes, they were receiving a tradition, but. Like Ben said, um, the innovations were critical to the survival of the Jewish people and and brilliant. So it does yeah, not. I, 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 I agree with you. I, I don't think that it should threaten anyone's faith. What, whatever side of the argument you're on, um, we've had conversations with uh, Doctor Rabbi Doctor Joshua Berman and recently Rabbi Foreman on the subjects of biblical criticism, and it's very much a. So, conversation that the rabbis themselves have had um so you know we want we might want to whitewash it and in, in, in the yeshiva world but it's a real thing and it's okay it's not it doesn't really change anything i think i think christians actually feel very threatened by it and you know muslims like to jump on it you know the, the opportunity to say oh jews uh you know their torah is uh, corrupt or something but the truth of the matter is like you know, it, it shouldn't have any impact on our faith. We we happen to be Orthodox Jews who accept the Torah completely. But, you know, the conversation is a very, in my opinion, not such an important conversation. I agree with that. I wish that we put it on the periphery of our faith. I mean, I and I think you can still think about the Torah as being the center of your life and being uh, and having a sanctity. But again, I don't even have to go into that because I feel like it detracts from the conversation that we've been having for 45 yes. minutes, which is, you know, a different conversation about how these traditions develop. And it's not just about the text. It's about the conversations that are standing behind the text and those questions of identity and connection. I think the it, it, it meets the Torah because of the rabbis has become so dynamic and relevant throughout the ages that it's almost so unfortunate that it's become kind of this dogmatic, um, you know, st static kind of thing where you can't have certain conversations anymore. It's kind of a closed book. Whatever, you know, happened over the last few hundred years. And naturally, with an exile like this, you know, we have to expect these things happen. But it's definitely, you know, now we live in a very privileged time where we can have these conversations and have access to so much information. And we can talk to people who we never met you know, before in person and have these Zoom calls. So this is really... And I think that also it's because, you know, you it is your your ability to go and to and to study the Second Temple, Second Temple period in history. There's more avenues today to be able to appreciate the Torah, which maybe a thousand years ago wasn't so simple. You know what I mean? So when the Ramam is making the 13 principles of faith, there is a need for that at the time. Not that there's no need for it now, too, but I'm saying that there's a lot of information and a lot of things that a thousand years ago was not available. And, you know, a protective fence makes a lot more sense to me than today. Like you said, you don't feel threatened by it because you have been you have been blessed to be able to really, really, really study so much about 
our history that it becomes so obvious to you the 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 Jewish story that you don't need that in order to feel energized by your Judaism and that's fine but a thousand years ago I don't know if that would have been the same so I'm kind of what I'm trying to do is in a way say that you know the the Yud Gimel the the thirteen principles of faith that the Rambam made I think that there was a need for it at that time I don't think people were able to connect it the way we have the opportunity today to do so if that makes any sense. It, it makes a lot of sense, but I would also offer a different suggestion that I think correlates with what you're saying, which is I think things have definitely changed in a thousand years. But I also think that there's something unique to how we have thought about our tradition that is specific to the post-Enlightenment era. And that is that mm -hmm. we put so much currency on, did it happen? I'm mm -hmm. not convinced that the Midrashic writers were saying, oh my gosh, did the Kishana Ish story happen? Did Avram really go into the fiery furnace? And did it really happen that he survived? I don't know that that is what they were caught up in. I do think that today, what do we do? We say, okay, for our uh, religion to be legitimate, we have to present it to the world as if it is completely rational. Uh, yes, you do actually have that urge in um, Aristotelian uh, thinkers like Philo of Alexandria, but I don't know that that's the norm in our tradition. Um, by definition, religion is a leap of faith. That's the end and the beginning. If you're not ready to take that leap of faith, then religion's not for you. That's okay. But I'm not about knowledge and fact. I'm about belief, right? If you're going to prove everything, that's not a religion, right? That's a sign. I think, I think the rational approach to it is not to take things like that literally. It's actually to say, Let's look at what Chazal were actually thinking and what they were, what were their, what was the tradition of the Geonim, for example, on Midrash, which by most accounts is, you know, that it's didactic fiction and these are kind of, you know, stories to teach lessons. And I agree with you, but I don't think that most Orthodox Jews are saying it that way. Oh, no, they're not. They're not. That well, that's, that's coming from, a, from, 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 unfortunately, a lack of knowledge. Yes. It's literally all there. If you read all the Geonim, you read the Rambam, it's like, it's black and white. It's, it's the reason. It's the reason why we're doing this podcast to begin with, because yeah. we're trying to shed light in, in, you know, on these things in the Jewish, in the Orthodox world. Uh, just like the rabbis, you're not innovating. You've just received the tradition <laughs> from my I know that you here. You can take a little credit for innovating, um, but no, I really think that, like, if we stop saying, "Did it happen?" and we start to ask more relational questions, how can this text enhance my relationship with God? Um, but we have to stay within a framework of, you know, we're jumping into the unknown. That's what it means to be a Jew. So, like, let's be okay with that. That takes some humility. Let's, let's be okay with that humility. Absolutely. So before we go, I know you don't have much time, and I would really love to do this again. But I want to end by asking you about your current experience working with, like, the Catholic Church. And how does that kind of, uh, you know, dynamic work with yourself being an Orthodox Jew and then working with, you know, uh, Christian theologians and, you know, I'm sure they're trying to convince you of things. Um, how does that work? Well, they're actually not. I don't work with evangelicals um, for reasons. Uh, well, I'm, I'm not going to say, I'm just going to say I work with the Catholic church. It's, it's not the same as working with other Protestant denominations that might have a more fundamentalist tendency or uh, attitude towards the Jews that we would call a, um, sort of replacement theology right. As of the second vatican council uh, which was issued in 1965 the um well um the, the second vatican council and specifically the text known as nostra aetate 
the Catholic Church is not allowed to missionize to the Jewish people. And that document also retracted the official accusation against the Jews of deicide, of God murder. And so I would say that in general, there's a lot of complications, but in general, the global relationship between Jews who are involved in interfaith dialogue and the Catholic Church is very, very positive. Um, it's a challenging relationship. It is sometimes, uh, it could be sometimes a depleting relationship. It takes constant work like any relationship, um, but many leaders in the Catholic Church today are very open to uh, introspection and undoing this incredibly damaging theology regarding the Jewish people. That's for another podcast because it really requires a very long answer. I want to get into that. Hopefully we can. That's a great oh, yeah. level. <laughs> if, you're, if you're down for that, we're, we'll, we'd love to do that one day. Another Malika, time. we really, really appreciate you coming on and we appreciate your intellectual honesty and courage. We, we really appreciate that. We, we appreciate everything that you've expressed. Um, and thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This was a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Take care. Lala Tov. Good night. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning into the Judaism Demystified podcast. We really appreciate all your support and your feedback. If you want to help us grow the podcast, keep spreading the word, share it with your friends, family, or whoever you think would be interested. We also opened a Patreon, so you can become a patron, contribute any small amount you'd like which would really help us grow the show. Um, our Patreon is www.patreon.com slash Judaism. Pretty easy to remember. Thank you again, and we hope to keep putting out great shows for you guys.